All right. Come back 5.30 this evening. We can talk and talk and talk. Have a good time. This morning, if you have your Bibles, we are in the book of 1 John. We are in chapter 3, and we're going to cover the first 16 verses of 1 John chapter 3. If you need a Bible, uh, Kevin and Bill are here. Just raise your hand. I'll get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 16 this morning. For those of you that know um, our dear Marine brother Ray, he took a spill last Friday, broke his femur, connected right to his replaced hip that he had done, and so just be praying for me if you would, um, praying that uh, God would touch him and heal him and take that pain away, and uh, I mean, he's a Marine through and through. He got off the ground and walked to the car and <laughs> with a broken femur, it's like, oh, really? But... uh just be praying for him. First John chapter 3, verses 1 through 16. Let's read the first three verses, then we'll uh, cover the rest as we go along. Starting in verse 1, we read, John write, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has his hope in Him purifies himself, just as He is pure. The title of my study this morning is The Real Love of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this time that we can spend together in Your Word. We thank You for the sweet fellowship we can have, Lord. We thank You, Holy Spirit, uh, for giving us understanding of your word, that we might apply your truths into our lives that would change us, draw us closer to you in our relationship with you. And as a result, Lord, we would know you better and be growing strong in our relationship with you. Lord, we pray if there's anyone that has joined us that has yet to surrender their heart and life to you, Lord, that, uh, that they would do so this morning. They would see their need for you and for a relationship with you, for their sin to be forgiven, and then come to know you as Lord and Savior. Bless our time together, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's an old Charlie Brown comic strip cartoon where Charlie is having this conversation with Lucy. And Lucy asks him, you know what? I don't understand. I don't understand love, she says to Charlie Brown. Charlie says, well, who does? Well, Lucy is worked up over the subject. She vents her frustration. Explain love to me, Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown replies, you can't explain love. I, I can recommend a book or a poem or a painting, but I can't explain love. She pleads, try, Charlie Brown, try. So Charlie gives it a feeble attempt. Well, let's say I see this beautiful and cute young lady walk by. Lucy interrupts, why does she have to be cute and beautiful, huh? Why can't a young man fall in love with a girl who has freckles and a big nose? Explain that, Charlie Brown. Lucy has now become extremely agitated. Charlie Brown shrugs. Okay, let's just say I see this girl uh, walk by with this great big nose. Again, Lucy interrupts. I didn't say a great big nose. Finally, Charlie Brown walks away muttering, you not only can't explain love, you can't even talk about it. <laughs> and this is the problem we're having in our world today. 
We're having a hard time explaining and even talking about love, let alone showing love one to another. Definitions and dialogues have broken down. Emotions are raw. Nerves are frayed. Tweets get misinterpreted. We all need understanding. And here comes John to our rescue. He not only talks about love, he explains it, he defines God's love for us and the importance of our love one for another. You see, here in chapter 3, we begin a new section as John calls us to experience the real love of God. Carl Barth, he's a famed theologian back in the early 1900s, was once asked, what is the greatest thought you ever had? His answer, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But you see, even today, Christians have doubts about their status with God, their status in the church, their status in the world, doubts about their salvation, doubts about uh, whether their sin will cause them to be booted out of the family of God, feelings of guilt over people you just don't seem to be able to love, that struggle with old habits, and so on. But you see, here in First John, this little epistle, John covers it. John helps us to see that when you become a Christian and walk with God and desire to maintain fellowship with Him, you really begin to hate your sin and you really begin to hate that old life that you came from. John Newton, he was a slave trader, became a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ and was famous for writing the most beloved hymn of all time, Amazing Grace. He said these words, I'm not what I ought to be, but I'm not what I once was, and it's by the grace of God that I am what I am. Now, if you're taking notes this morning, we're going to see three things. Number one, living in love. Number two, living in hope. And number three, living in light of eternity. First thing we're going to look at is living in love. Go back for a moment to chapter 2, verse 28. John writes, And now, little children, using that endearing term, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him, at his coming. See, John is thinking about the false teachers that had been in the church there at the time and left and all that's going on in his world. He's thinking about sin and how it distracts you from having that true fellowship with God. He's also thinking about those that are abiding in Christ, those that are spending time in God's Word, praying, seeking the Lord, how they won't be ashamed at the soon return of Jesus Christ. And upon that note, he starts to really get a a little bit excited as he's thinking about the great love that God has for us. So much so that he just bursts forth with this declaration of God's love. Look now at verse 1 of chapter 3. He says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. See, when you think about our final destination... You think about our final outcome of our salvation, how the love of God that that lies behind it, and how wonderful it is, and how great He is. You, like John, will immediately want to burst into praise to God for the greatness of His love, making us become one of His children, allowing us to become one of His children. See, when John says that word, behold, it means how great. It implies great astonishment. In our, our modern day language, you might say, how amazing. Then the phrase, what manner, literally means something that is foreign. It was something that was out of your country. So you can almost say, it's out of this world. So 
Tom paraphrased, it goes like this. Wow, this is amazing. This is, this, this is out of this world. That God has so much love towards us that He calls us His kids. Now remember, this is the same John who hung out with Jesus all of those years, but yet he's absolutely mind-blown that we, including himself, could be called a child of God. How's that possible? Only through being born again into the family of God. See, even though John wrote the gospel that bears his name, John chapter 3, that great dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus about being born again, John comes to realize it himself, and he's just blown away by the whole idea. Now, I love that John recorded that private discussion that Jesus had there in John 3 and with Nicodemus. But have you ever thought about the fact that John probably wasn't there when all that went down? That, that, uh, that John had to receive that story from Jesus himself. And Jesus says to John, Hey, John, hey, buddy, come over here. I've got to tell you something. I want you to write in your book. Remember this guy named Nicodemus? Well, he came to me at night, and, and he, he you know, called me a good teacher, and, and I told him how he needed to be born again, how he could be a child of God. And John's going, Wow, that's a really cool story. Yeah, I want to write that down. But it was the Spirit of God that, that came into John and inspired John to write that clear teaching of being born again. Because once you're born again, you become a child of God. Peter teaches that once we're born again, we have the divine nature in us. Now, don't, please don't misunderstand me in thinking that you become little gods as these false teachers today are teaching. It's false doctrine that is false teaching. But what this means is that God actually lives inside of you and you've been born into His family. You've been partakers of His divine nature and of His holiness and His love and His mercy and His compassion. All those attributes that are communicable to human beings, we now have and we can display in our own lives. Now, certainly, we're not going to be those attributes that we can. I'm not going to be, you know, omniscient, all-knowing. We're never going to be that way. We're not going to be omnipotent, all-powerful. Certainly not omnipresent, unless I put on a whole lot of weight, but, but I don't even know you can go that far. But, but we can be holy as God is holy. I can be long-suffering. I can be patient. I can be kind. Those are the attributes of God that I can have. I can love as God loves. Because becoming a, a child of God means you take on His attributes. It's like in your kids. You see a little bit of each of you in each one of your kids, more in some, less, less in others. It's really funny for me to see myself and my grandkids. You're going, oh, I see me in that little attitude right there. Sometimes I don't like seeing me and my kids. Sometimes you do. But it doesn't change the fact that you're going to see something that resembles you and your kids. So too, being born again, being a child of God, we will take on certain attributes of God. Again, look at verse 1. He says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Then he goes on, Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Why doesn't the world know us? Because we're becoming more and more like Jesus, like our Savior. Let me read that again. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. I've always liked the story about how there was this evening social for uh, army officers and their wives. And the commanding general uh, of the base had been given a special award. And he proceeded to drone on and on in a long speech of thanks. Well, this lieutenant mumbled to the woman at his side, Why they would award him a prize is beyond me. He's nothing but a boring old windbag. 
Well, the woman turned to him, her jaw set, and said, Lieutenant, do you know who I am? No, ma'am. I'm the wife of the man you just called a boring old windbag. I see, said the young lieutenant. And do you know who I am? No, I don't, said the general's wife. Good, said the lieutenant as he disappeared into the crowd. (laughs) So, too, the world doesn't recognize who we are. As Christians, our hearts is the site of a miracle. God's Spirit dwells within us. This is an amazing thing that God has done. Yet we're so often stereotyped, made fun of, persecuted, put down for it. Listen, don't let the way the world treats you affect how you see yourself. In other words, as Christians, don't allow the world to press us into its mold. Rather, live out what God has put inside of you. We need to remember who we are in Christ. Colossians 3.3, Paul writes to the believers when he says, For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Yeah, life is hard. It is difficult. But, and the world does look on us as Christians. To them, our lives make no sense to them. They think we're nuts. They think, oh, you Christians, you serve a God you can't see. You, you long for a home in heaven you, you've never seen. You look forward to, to a, a man saving you who died some 2,000 years ago, whose life is written about in a book that they've never read. And in one sense, they're right. Our God is invisible. Our home is on the horizon, out of sight, off the map. But they're wrong about the man who died 2,000 years ago. He was God in the flesh who also rose from the dead. And we have it written in his book from his, his very own words, God's word. But you see, that is why our Savior is only seen through the eyes of faith. Our helper, our Holy Spirit, who dwells within us, helps us to understand and grasp all who God is. That treasure is buried in our hearts. Our source of joy and love and power and peace is accessed only from the inside of our lives. In short, our lives are hidden in Christ. Now Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 2.14, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. In other words, the world doesn't get it. They can't get it. They don't have the Spirit of God in them. The world does not know us because it did not know him. But I believe all that will change one day soon. This brings us to our second point, number two, the living hope. Look at verses two and three. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has his hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Now, when we become children of God... We don't have that, that glorified body. We're not glorified yet. I mean, if you look at somebody as a Christian, they're not glowing all over, and they're not walking two feet off the ground. They, you know, they, they look like normal. We look like normal human beings. But one day, we are going to be glorified. We're going to receive new glorified bodies, bodies that are transformed and changed and, and eternal in the heaven. In fact, when that day appears, we're going to be like him. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 52, and 53, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. Notice that word must there in that verse. It's emphatic. For this corruptible must be 
must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. We cannot go into heaven in the bodies that we are in right now. They, they weren't made for heaven. They're made for earth, just like a, a fish is made for the sea and can swim around wherever it wants to go for hours and hours and hours. We are limited to oxygen tanks and masks and rubber fins to get around with. We're limited to, to where we can go, uh, how deep we can go. Same way, in these, these human bodies, uh, going into heaven, we, we'd be limited. We'd miss out on, on so much. I'm convinced even in our human bodies we miss out on so much spiritually going on around us. But one day, as Christians, we'll all have be glorified. One day we're going to receive those, those glorified bodies. So when we're there, look for a guy with a full head of hair, no glasses, big old biceps, and you go, that's Tom. Man, you've changed. My point is we'll receive new bodies that have transformed and changed and are made for heaven, eternal in the heavens. But best of all, when that day comes, we will be like Him, like Jesus. I mean, that's what the phrase, like Him in verse 2, is talking about not only physical likeness, but, but moral likeness. We're going to be free from sin. We're going to be free from suffering, and we're going to be free from sickness, free from the pain and all the sorrows that are in this life. We shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is, John says. Then he goes on, and everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as He is pure. Everyone who has the hope of seeing Jesus, everyone who's looking forward to His coming, is going to walk with a greater degree of purity than with which He would otherwise walk. Living in that constant awareness that the Lord could come back at any moment. Whether you believe in a pre-tribulation, mid-trib, or post-trib rapture, when you read Jesus' words concerning the end times, you cannot come up with any other conclusion other than to say, He wants us living each and every day as if He could come back right now, today. Now there are those that said, well, I've been hearing you talk about that, Pastor, for years and years. I've heard it before. Billy Graham talked about that. And, and 100 years ago, D.L. Moody talked about that. Believed Jesus was going to come shortly. C.S.H. Spurgeon said the same thing 150 years ago. And it still happens. Hasn't happened, rather. <laughs> Hopefully. I mean, otherwise we've all missed it. So, but... <laughs> Listen. I'm okay with that, even if the Lord doesn't come back in my lifetime. Put me in the company of all those men that thought that Jesus would come back during their time. Put me in the same company as Francis of Assisi, Spurgeon, Moody, Torrey, Finney, Pastor Chuck Smith. I would rather be with those men throughout the ages, including the first century church, who are living with the true expectancy of the coming of Christ, uh, than to be in the company of those who say, Oh, I can't be today. Oh, I've been hearing that for years. Let me tell you, I definitely think it could be today. It could be within this year. I'm, I'm not saying it will be today because Jesus said no man knows the day or the hour. And if I said it was today, then that would just mark off today. So it could be today. Uh, that's different. It could be. It could be right now. Right now. You see... In other words, how everything is happening right now in our world is signs that Jesus could return. In fact, we had a conference we showed here at the church last week on, on Saturday. I don't know some of you couldn't make it or not, but, but uh, and, and they, they talked about the convergence 
of, of everything coming together, showing us that, that we could be close to the Lord's return. Jan Markle, she has a ministry called Olive Tree Ministries, and, and she keeps up on all these things happening in the world. And she was one of the first speakers, and she gave to us ten uh, things, ten pieces that are falling into place right now that shows us how soon the Lord's return could be. Let me, I mean, she spoke for an hour, but, but I think I can do this in about five minutes, giving you about those ten things that she, she covered. I kind of took them from my notes. The first thing she said that we see happening is the decline of our wonderful country. She pointed out that the, the debacle of Afghanistan and how, as a result, other nations are no longer looking to the U.S. for leadership. After Kabul, there's been a whole lot of questions about our leadership, and, and she says you have to wonder if it wasn't deliberate. Some say it was. Second thing she said that you would look for that's happening right now is a rush to global government. She says what's coming is a new world order. A one world human government is on the horizon. She said for that to happen, the U.S. cannot be the one and only superpower. Everything's got to be on a level playing field, she says. And it's all wrapped up in what she called the World Economic Forum. The leader of this World Economic Forum, a man named Klaus Schwab, he said this, the pandemic represents a rare but narrow window of opportunity to reflect, reimagine, and reset our world. This World Economic Forum is planning to meet the beginning of 2022, January, to put their final touches on what they're calling the final reset. When will it launch? We don't know, but they're working on it. Jan Markle has said she believes their great reset is the beginning of the great tribulation. Their slogan, you can, you can go on their website, you can see it, you will own nothing and be happy. Crazy. Obviously, the last days it will be communism at its peak, global Marxism. Certainly there's a convergence of a one world government even as we speak. Let her see. The third thing she pointed out is that we're seeing is a government overreach based on fear. I thought that was a big one. She pointed out that no one wants to get sick, but the overreach of our government spreading fear and putting mandates on people that affect their health is, is more important than faith and liberty and freedom is what we're seeing. We're hearing, trust your government. We're only doing this for your own good. Jan called it a total totalitarian takeover. Jan's word. She says a, a very tribulation-esque. She said, I think that's my new favorite word, tribulation-esque. Fourth thing she says is creation groans. The different things happening in, in our world. Birth pangs, extreme weather conditions. She says it's not global warming. She says there are at least 50 verses that tell us that God controls our weather. E, lawlessness. She pointed out how today the new left is far more dangerous than Islam. Lawlessness is what we've seen this last year as peaceful protests turned into rioting and looting. It's reckless disregard for law and order. It's taken to all due level right now. F, rise of Romans 1 mentality. This, this was a big one. Reprobate minds, delusions, hearts darkened. People think they are wise, but God calls them fools. Romans 1, God's given them over to debased mind. They're filled with unrighteousness. She pointed out how today there's a hundred different genders, people say. She pointed out a sign that read, God blesses abortions. 
And she shed, uh, talked about the whole transgender mentality. G, uh, technology and artificial intelligence. Devices like Alexa and Google and Apple listening into our conversations, monitoring 24-7. Jan pointed out how there's this new technology that could lead to the image of, of the beast. These investors are, are creating this giant electronic statue. Huge. Uh, it looks like it's probably at least 20, 30 feet tall. And uh, it, it's all electronic. It, the head moves. The arms move. And uh, you could put uh, a person's face on it and hear their words out of it. And you can go online and you can see this for yourself. It's there. And she, uh, she speculates, could this be, uh, you know, uh, the image of the, art, of the, the worship, the, the demand to worship the image of the beast? Any way you look at it, uh, artificial intelligence is at an all-time high. The eighth convergence of signs in the times in which you're living is pointed out by Jan Markle as wolves among the flock. Wolves among the flock. We're certainly seeing that. She brought up this group called NAR, N-A-R, the New Apostolic Reformation. What that is, it's an unbiblical religious movement that emphasizes experience over scripture, mysticism over doctrine, and modern day apostles over the plain text of the Bible. These new apostles and, and prophets are the authority and want to bring heaven to earth, no rapture, dominion, kingdom now mentality. Pastor Johnson, uh, Bill Johnson of Bethel Church is the classic example she brings up. Wolves among the flock. The ninth convergence, a new hatred for Christians. She says, fulfilling 2 Timothy 3.12, yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. She mentioned that, that, that the hatred, unlike what we've never seen before, really is, is amped up against Christians. She says 912% on TikTok, a hatred directed at Jews, conservatives, and Christians. And then finally, the tenth thing she said, she brought up Middle East instability. And we see that happening. She mentioned how since Afghanistan fell, the Taliban, which lived in their minds and with a 7th century uh, mindset, now has modern day century technology. Think about that. I mean, the whole region has now reason to believe a terror attack can come at any moment. She pointed out how all these countries have never been lined up like ever before to, for the fulfillment of Ezekiel 38 and 39. And these are things that Jen Markle digs deeper into her study. So, so I encourage you to get it, to, to go online and watch it. But they all add up. Many more things she didn't even mention that are going on. The world monetary system, one world religion, again, the mark of the beast. But all that's going on in our world today presently all point to the fact that it is quite possible that we are on the very verge of Jesus' return to this earth. You know, the Bible tells us one in every 25 verses in the New Testament deals with the Lord's return. 318 times in 260 chapters of the New Testament, we read it. It's mentioned in every one of the New Testament books except Galatians, uh, because that book deals with specific doctrinal problems, and the very short books of Second John, Third John, and Philemon. Paul, in his letter to the Thessalonians, brought it up when he said, we're going to be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. He spoke to the Philippians in Philippians 3.20, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter called the return of Jesus Christ a living hope, 1 Peter 1, 3. 
Paul called it a blessed hope, Titus 2.13. John declared in Revelation 1.7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. And then he finishes up Revelation 22.20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so come, Lord Jesus. My point in bringing all these verses up is that John, instead of making it a point of doctrine, tells us that the soon return of Jesus Christ should be incentive for us to live holy lives. Lives of purity, righteous lives. But it's only possible living righteous if we're abiding in Jesus Christ. And we're encouraged to do that by the knowledge of the fact that one day we will have to give an account to Him. It's important that we understand this because I think for believers, a lot of times we, we, we get excited about the rapture of the church. Oh, this is great. I can't wait for the rapture. Get rid of all the harsh realities of this life. But I think we forget when the rapture happens, we're going to have to give an account to the Lord. We will. And that should affect the way we live. Again, that's why John says in 1 John 3, 3, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. If you really believe the Lord could come back at any moment, it should impact the way that we live. That brings us to point number three, living in light of eternity. We'll go along verse by verse in verse 14 to 16 as John shows us the difference between those living in light of eternity and those living in sin. Those who are called a child of God and those who are called a child of the devil. Look at verse 4. John writes, Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. That's a very good definition of sin. There it is. It's lawlessness. It's breaking God's laws, which, again, the Bible says is a mark of living in the last days. Lawlessness will abound. Sin is lawlessness. John says it very clearly in verse 4. But then he adds in verse 5, And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Now, this is one of John's statements in his epistle where he uses the word manifested to describe what Jesus did. It's a great word. It's a clear statement why Jesus came. He was manifested to take away our sins. See, he was and is the pure and holy God who became the substitute for our sins and the purpose for which he came into this world. The sole purpose was to save us from our sins. The incarnation, the fact that God became a man and was born of man yet without sin therefore made him the only one who can take away our sins because he had no sin in him. That's why John the Baptist could say and point to Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Or Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Then John goes on to give the comparison between the child of God living for eternity and the unsaved still living in sin. Look at verse 6. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Now you read that and people have a problem with this. They go, now wait a cotton picking minute, Pastor. Is this saying what I think it's saying? Because if it is, I'm in bad shape. Because I've sinned. Does this mean I've lost my salvation, that I'm doomed, that I'm lost forever? Relax, okay? Calm down. Does it mean that Christians never sin? It means that you don't habitually, continually, willfully, deliberately practice sin. If you are a Christian and you have fellowship with Him, you're not going to be deliberately and willfully practicing sin. 
And if you are continually, habitually, willfully, deliberately practicing sin, then you are not a child of God. See, this verse does not mean someone who falters in sin or struggles with sin or or falls because of a, a struggle with a certain sin is not a Christian. It is referring to one who blatantly, habitually, and continually practices sin. And practice, you know, it's like someone who's, who's learning to, to play the piano. They practice and practice until they get really, really good at it. Sadly, in the same way, there are some that are really, really good at, at sinning. And, and so, someone who continually, habitually sins without any sense of remorse or real repentance, John says, they're not really born again. But, he says in verse 7, and he uses this endearing term once again, little children, let no one deceive you, he who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. Now remember, John's writing to combat the, the, the Gnostics, the, the Gnosticism that taught it didn't matter what you did with your body because all matter is evil, so you might as well just be evil because that doesn't matter. John is saying, don't be deceived by them. You can live holy lives, uh, but, verse 80 says, but he who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. He goes, but these guys over here who keep on sinning and sinning, they're not, you know, it's of the devil. It's of the devil. They are the devil. John's bringing about this comparison. He says, we know who the children of God are, and we can tell who the children of the devil are. How can we know? Well, the one who's continually, habitually sinning, practicing sin, they're of Satan. The one who, who's continually, deliberately following after righteousness, they're of God. Folks, we need to understand that the devil is the source of all sin. He's the one responsible for for bringing it into this world. He's the one that led our first parents into sin. And the reason you and I have a sinful nature today is all because of the devil. I think about when Jesus spoke to the religious rulers of his day in John 8, 44. He says, you are of your father the devil and the desires of your father you want to do. I mean, the, the interesting thing is that, that we will take after our Father. If your Father's the devil, you're going to act like Him. If your Father's our Heavenly Father, then you're going to have His nature and you're going to act like Him. If you're not a Christian, the devil is family. If you're a born-again Christian, your devil is your enemy. Can I just say that's where you want Him as your enemy? If you're going to have any relationship with the devil, you don't want Him as your friend, you want Him as your enemy. That's why John goes on, look at verse 8 and 9. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin for his seed remains in him and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Second time here, John mentions this word manifest and that Jesus was manifested into this world to destroy the power of sin and the works of the devil. But John adds this time that a mark of being born again is that you are not going to willfully, deliberately continue in sin. And then that word seed spoken of here in verse 9 could either refer to the life of Christ within the life of the believer or could refer to the Word of God. I think it's both. Spirit of, of Christ comes into a man and the Word of God stirs within him. He cannot continue to sin indefinitely. Yeah, we may struggle with sin We might be ensnared by it at times, but we're not comfortable in sin. That's why a Christian involved in sin is the most miserable person in the world. He has too much of the Lord to enjoy the sin and too much of the sin to enjoy the Lord. So again, the seed, speaking of the person of Christ or the Word of God or both, John says, having the seed does not allow a person to habitually continue to practice sin. Then in verse 10, he tells us how you can tell the difference. 
And this, the children of God and the children of the devil, are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Now John goes right back to, to verse 1. comes back down to God's love we're to have towards him, and not wanting to sin, and God's love we're to have towards each other. Because the idea of being born again and having God's nature in you is going to produce love for God and love for one another. In other words, how can you be born of God and a child of God if you're filled with hatred or if there's no love in your life? It's like the congressman addressing the House of Representatives who said this, Never before have I heard such ill-informed, wimpy, backstabbing drivel as that just uttered by my respected colleague, the distinguished gentleman from Ohio. In the same way, I can't stand, I can't say, I can't stand that brother or that sister in the Lord. They're the most irritating, obnoxious individual ever to walk the face of this earth. But I love you, Lord, and I live. You can't do that. So the manifestation that you are a child of God is you will practice righteousness. You'll love your brother or sister. After all, Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this you shall know if you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. You know, here's the thing about love. Don't sit around and wait for the feeling of love. Just do it. It's an action word. Start loving people. Have you ever noticed 1 Corinthians 13, the the whole chapter, classic chapter on the definition of love? He doesn't so much talk about what love is as, as much as he does what love does. He says, if you have that love, you're going to be patient. You're going to be kind. You're going to have a love that's not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. You're not going to demand your own way. You're not going to be irritable. If you truly have the love of Christ, you're going to keep no record of when you have been wronged. You know, there are people, they love to keep the track of record wrongs. Husbands and wives, we have that tendency to do that. And we bring up that hurtful thing from 20 years ago. Really? You're bringing that up? Well, what about when you said this 15 years ago? Well, I remember this eight years ago you said that. You know what? Stop it already. <laughs> Let it go. It's time to you for forget and forgive. But don't tell me how much you love God if you hate somebody. Again, John says in verse 11 through verse 13, For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Verse 12. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother, and why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. There's so much in our New Testament that speaks about the fact that if you're a Christian, if you're living in light of eternity, if you're trying to live righteously, you're not going to be loved by the world. In fact, you are going to be hated. And John draws an example, an illustration uh, from the Old Testament about Cain. It says Cain was wicked and murdered his brother Abel. And he gives us why, the reason why he killed Abel. Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Cain hated his brother simply because Abel was a righteous man and Cain wasn't. Very first case of domestic violence in God's word right there between Cain slaying his own brother Abel. Pretty sad and pretty tragic that today, if you talk to any police officer, most of their calls involve domestic violence, uh, even to the point of, of, of murder. 
John says the same kind of hatred that Cain had for Abel, the world is going to have towards us as Christians. But very few unbelievers really love Christians. Again, verse 13, Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. Don't be surprised. Don't marvel that the non-Christians don't want to come by our church just to check us out. Hey, let's go hang out with those Christians there on Lone Pine and Seminole at Calvary. Don't you just love when they sing? Don't you just love when they talk about Jesus? Let's go hang out with them. They're not going to do that. They're not going to want to. Their, their attitude is, who wants to be with those Jesus freaks? Those white, right-wing fanaticals, you know? But you know, I, I can't blame them. I, I remember how I was before I got saved. I was in high school and seeing the, the Christian club on campus. You know, they, they met in the senior square there in the middle. And, and they, you know, they're all just, just smiling and all dressed nice. And, 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 and uh, you know, walk by them. And, and I go, oh, you know what, I think I'd rather hang out with the sinners and, than, than, than them. I, I don't know. Why? Because I don't want to feel bad about myself. You know, seeing these guys where they were at. They look so clean and nice. They're always smiling. And I'd go, that's creepy. Let's get out of here. Because <laughs> the conviction of the Holy Spirit was there. I mean, who wants to be around the conviction of the Holy Spirit? But then you get saved. Then you become one of them. And you think, hey, these people are okay. Even, I don't know if I'll dress like they dress, but they're still Okay. But, but in the natural, there's nothing that, that you can relate to. But in the spirit, in the spirit, well, it's great fellowship we can have in God. Fellowship is great. The way other believers love you and accept you and pray for you, and then you start to have the love for them, people that, that are not your type of person, you just love them anyway. And you want to hang with them. That's a mark of knowing that you are a Christian, as John says in verse 14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. If you have a love for other Christians, it's an indication, he says, you pass from death to life. It's a sign you've truly been born again. I mean, think about this. We, we can go, well, I'm in church on Sunday morning and I am enjoying this. I love hanging out with these folks. Even though that pastor's kind of weird, I love being here. I must truly be saved. I must truly be born again. We know we've been passed from death to life because of the love we have for one another. It's a marvelous thing. But, John gives this warning. He who does not love his brother abides in death. And verse 15, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. If you want to define murder, Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, if you have hatred in your heart for your brother, then you're a murderer because God looks at the heart. The heart is a place where the murder begins. And John says that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. They've not been born again. They've not been regenerated. And finally he says this in verse 16. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. One of the greatest verses and all of First John if not all of scripture. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. If I were to ask you this morning do you know that God loves you? What would be your answer? Well, he gave me a new car. I know that he loves me. Gave me a wife, uh, my kids, my job. Oh, he knows that I love you. He gave me my health. He gave me food to eat. Oh, I know that God loves me. But what about those that have poor health? What about those that don't have food to eat or they don't have a new car, a wife or great kids? How do they know that God loves them? It's the cross. 
It's the cross, the real love of God. By this we know love because He laid down His life for us. What a marvelous thing that Jesus would show us just how much He loved us. This morning, you need to remember that Jesus loves you so very, very, very much that He gave His life for you on that cross at Calvary. What a marvelous thing that He could take away our sins, that He would destroy the works of the devil, and He could manifest demonstrate the love of God for you and I. How marvelous is God's love towards us. So, we in turn need to be living in love, living in hope, living in light of eternity. As we close, when we talk about the hope of heaven, this is not just wishful thinking. It's not blind optimism. It's a quiet confidence. It's a supernatural certainty. We know deep in our hearts that we indeed are children of God. We are told in Romans 8, His Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So let me ask you the question, do you have that sense inside of you right now? See, what a great thing it is to have this certainty, this hope that we will meet the Lord one day. I've always loved the acronym for hope. It's holding on with patient expectation. I like that. Holding on with patient expectation. Now, now this applies to life in general. When you're facing a crisis, when you have marriage that's unraveling, when you have a child that's gone prodigal, when you have a crisis that you're facing and you need hope, you need to hold on with patient expectation, which simply means that you believe that God is sovereign and that God is in control of your life, that He can work all things out according to His plan. Don't forget, we have a loving Father who has a watchful eye on you. And then as we look at life in general, and we know that Christ could come back at any moment. We also hold on to that hope. Expectation, looking forward to that day. A uh, hope, yeah, of heaven. Yeah, that's our hope. But more importantly, of seeing Jesus Christ, being with Him. That's our hope. This morning, if you don't have that hope, I pray that you don't leave here without making that commitment to Christ so you can have that hope that we have. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the hope that we have, Lord, that no matter what this world's going on in this world, we know you. And we have the promise that those that know you, Lord, will will spend eternity with you. Lord, and we know you because we have you living inside of us. Your word tells us we become a, a child of God. We become your child. Lord, thank you. It's marvelous. It's wonderful. And Lord, we recognize that there are those that don't know you, Lord, and and your word calls them a child of the devil. Why? Because they're they're doing the things that the devil is leading them to do. We recognize that the evil we see in the world is all satanically energized, satanically led. And Father, we pray that in these days in which we're living in, that we could be a light in this dark place. That we would hold on, we would not give up, we would not back down. That we would stand for your truth. Stand for righteousness, abide in you, and bring you glory in all that we say and all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.